Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I, will, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Well, let's come uh, to our passage Today that David read to us, we are in the book of Hebrews, and we come to Hebrews chapter 8. Question 1. You should be able to manage it. What is this? A beagle, but it's a, it's a dog. Good. Well done. Question 2. What is this? Uh, you can shout out, it's okay. <laughs> it's a dog. Very good. Question three. What is this? Uh, it's a horse. <laughs> Could be. It's not a horse, it's a dog. Question four. What is this? <laughs> it's a rat or it's a dog. <laughs> yes. That's a dog and that's a dog. Question five, <laughs> what is this? It's a dog. Uh, you probably worked it out. Question six, <laughs> whether you were thinking or not, what is this? It's a dog. There they all are, dogs 
different sizes, different shapes, different in every way. If we had a dog, I did find one with two legs and two wheels at the back, and I thought, well, I didn't put the picture up because it was quite sad. But we would still know, even though it didn't have four legs and it had wheels on the back, that it was a dog. How is that? How do we know that all those are dogs when they're all so different? Well, for the philosopher Plato, for Plato, he said that somewhere outside of our reality, there is a place where there is a perfect concept of dog. There is a perfect concept of dogness. And therefore, we have this ideal concept of dog fixed in our mind. So we can recognize dogs in our world, even though what we are seeing, and they're all different, they're all imperfect copies of this perfect dog in our head. Well, if you like a bit of Plato, this is where his uh, picture of the cave came from. You might have heard that. This picture of some chaps. Uh, there they are, chained in a cave facing a wall. And behind them is a fire which casts shadows. And all they know in life are the shadows which are cast behind them. They never experience reality itself, just the shadows that were cast for them. Well, why do we start here this morning? I'm not going to teach Plato this morning. Well, we've arrived in our studies in the book of Hebrews at chapter 7 onwards, where the writer is taking these Old Testament teachings and saying we now have better. Last week we were thinking of a better priest. This week we come to a better covenant, and then over the next few weeks we'll be thinking of a better sacrifice. And one question you might be asking as we go through this is, well, if we have the new, the better, what was the purpose of the old? Was it all a mistake? So this is why we needed a plan B. Well, no, it wasn't. And verse 5 in our passage today tells us their purpose. They serve a copy of and shadow of heavenly things. Now, fans of Plato, you will see, go wild when they see the word shadow there in the Bible. Some have even gone as far to suggest it's Plato who the writer of the Hebrews is thinking about when he says these things. But it's not Plato who inspired the author to the Hebrews. It's God. And he was in the business of shadows and types a long time before Plato thought. You see, these things we're talking about, priesthoods and covenants and such, these things are not bad. They were not a freak accident but things arranged by a loving God. But they weren't what it was all about. They were not it. 
They were a copy. Not a patch on what was to come, but a signpost supposed to give clues and to point forward. A shadow. But what was cast in that shadow? Well, it's Jesus. He is the perfect and only fulfillment of all these things. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. He's saying Jesus is better. So all these things were pointing to Jesus. So don't get stuck on the signposts. Look at what they're pointing to. We have a, an invite uh, to a wedding currently magnetized, magnet, stuck up on our radiator um, in our kitchen. It's a very pretty and informative invite, but it's pointing forward to the main event. If we just spend the next year admiring the invite and we don't go to the wedding, well, we've missed the point. We'll be like men in a cave, staring at shadows, never knowing what the reality was. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. He started last week, and that's where our passage starts today, with the priesthood. Verse 3 reminds us of the normal priesthood, and verse 4 reminds us that Jesus isn't a priest like any of these priests. He wasn't a Levite. He was a different priest, a better priest. Verse 1, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is king, triumphant, and reigning. Yet he's also ministering there, we see in verse 2. He is our king priest. Now, interceding for us before the Father. That's what we got spent a long time thinking of last week. Jesus, our wonderful, better, high priest. Well, we, ma- we now move on today to the topic introduced in last week's chapter in verse 22, where the writer said, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, we are familiar, a little if you've been around a while, with this covenantal language from our time looking at Abraham in our series on Genesis. And that's all on the website if you want to go and check that out. But there we saw covenant, an agreement, almost a contract between two people, or in this instance, God and people. But the author here isn't thinking about Abraham when he's talking about covenant. Now, when we're reading about the old covenant in these passages, we're talking of that given to Moses. What we read in Exodus onwards, which includes the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the law. This is the old covenant. And the writer to the Hebrews talks of a new covenant, a better covenant. He talks about the old covenant in in astonishing ways, really. Imagine, if you can, of what these first readers would have thought. 
these readers who'd been brought up on this covenant with God, it wasn't called the old covenant then, just the covenant, they'd been brought up on this sacred agreement between God and his people. And then the writer describes it here as being obsolete, old, and ready to vanish. Imagine what they must have felt as they were reading these words. And again, we need to ask our question then, that if this is how the old covenant was described, well, why have it? Why have a non-perfect covenant? Well, those words, faulty, obsolete, and old, have various meanings. Notice first that it says the covenant isn't faultless. But look where the fault lies, verse 8, for he finds fault with them, with the people. It wasn't the covenant with the problem, but the people with the covenant. We'll get back to that. But the other words there, obsolete and old, means outdated, served its purpose. Hannah and I, well, our first car, you're talking about learner drivers this morning, the first car we bought with our own money uh, just before we were married was a little red Nissan Micra. You know, the old, not the fancy new Nissan Micras, the old ones. And it was a wonderful car. It had no electrics, so nothing ever broke. Didn't even have a cam built, so nothing of that broke. And it would just last, it lasted forever. And we would go everywhere in it. This is back in the day when we spent our summers on the road, pre-children, uh, going around different camps and beach missions all summer. One year in our little red mic where we started down in Poole on the south coast, we went further south down to Cornwall to do a beach mission. We went up to Scarborough, and then we came back down to Poole via a camp in Derby. And we'd fill it with everything we needed for the whole summer. That trip included a six-foot TARDIS we were using on the beach missions in the back of a Nissan Micra. It was a wonderful car. It never broke. But eventually we had to get rid of it because along came Ezekiel. And even though you could get a TARDIS in the back of it with the seats down, you could not get a buggy and a baby and all the stuff a baby needs and car seats and all the rest. So we gave it to one of the young people in our church. And last year it was still going, being passed down between the youth in the church. Don't get any ideas, guys, you're not having our car now. <laughs> so, But for us, the car was done. It had served its purpose. It was wonderful, but it had served its purpose. And we needed something new. And you see, that was the old covenant. It was good. It was good, but it had served its purpose. And the people needed something new. Because the covenant was pointing forward to something, or rather to someone. And when he came, well, he didn't need the old. 
You don't need the signpost when you've arrived at your destination. You didn't need the signpost when you, Jesus came with what he was bringing. So there was need of a new covenant. Verse 7 tells us. But the next question is then, what is so new about the new covenant? What is the difference in the old covenant and the new covenant? Well, we need to be careful here. Not to say what the Bible doesn't. We don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that the old covenant shows a God of judgment. Where the new covenant, well that shows a God of love. The old covenant is harsh and legalistic and the new is all mercy and freedom. Because that's not true. There's plenty of mercy and love in the old covenant. The fact that God was making a covenant with people in the first place shows that. And the new covenant doesn't do away with obedience in any way. We'll see that. In fact, the description of the new covenant we read here, for I will be their God and they shall be my people, is the same declaration of the old covenant as we read in Leviticus 24. So what is the difference? Verse 6 in our passage. The covenant Jesus mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. It's all about the promises. And we could spend days and weeks and months and years talking about covenantal theology. Some people do. Good luck to them. But today, I just want us to look at three of these promises in the new covenant. And the first is around this subject of sin. And there was plenty about sin in the old covenant. It showed extensively what sin is. But in doing so, it also showed us the holiness of God. Showed us what a massive problem this sin is and how it keeps us away from this holy, wonderful God. The old covenant introduced the cost of sin. It gave the sacrificial system the picture of a blood substitution. It was necessary, Paul says. Without it, we wouldn't know, in the book of Romans, he says, what sin was. And whilst we've said there was no lack of mercy in the old covenant, yet whilst the old covenant was able to reveal sin, it was not able to remove sin to save guilty sinners, for it pointed forward to something new. And this is the promise we read in chapter 12 of the new covenant. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember 
their sins no more. In Jesus Christ, full and lasting forgiveness is written into the new covenant. Sins forgiven. It couldn't happen under the old, but it can in Jesus Christ. The old covenant pointed to blood substitution, but the blood of bulls couldn't take away my rebellion against an almighty God. But Jesus' sacrifice could. We read it often when we come to the communion table. Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus Christ went to the cross, he took my sin, my rebellion upon himself so that I could know forgiveness of sins and peace with God. So the promise, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can say with confidence with the psalmist that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. The promise in the new covenant, I will remember their sins no more. Secondly, around the topic of the law. The old covenant was deeply concerned with the law. And ultimately, it was the people's disobedience and turning away from the law that convicted them. We saw it in verse 8. God found fault with the people because they couldn't keep the law. Verse 9, they did not continue in the covenant. And the mistake we've made, or we've seen and just mentioned, is to think that the law is done in the new covenant. But that's not the case. Hear Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth is passed away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now in fulfilling the law, it does mean some of those bits have passed, the ceremonial side of the law, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, those were pointing to Jesus, and we now see these things fulfilled in the death and resurrection of our Lord. But the call of God on our lives to live for him the call to go God's way, the daily command for obedience and to stand, that does not pass. And you see, it was the old covenant that shows us the law. And it pointed forward to Jesus wonderfully. But the Old Covenant had no power 
to give people, to obey it, to help people meet its requirements. But listen to the promise of the new covenant, verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. The comparison is there for us. The law given to Moses was written on stone tablets under the old covenant. But in the new, it's not stone, it's on fleshy hearts that it's written. And we know when we're talking about heart, we're not talking about the pumpy organ thing, but we're talking about us, the real us. In saying the law is on our m- in our minds and on our hearts, it means that the law is now in our thoughts, in our decisions, in our loves, in our motives, in our priorities. It can now and should now affect everything. And how is this possible? Well, we've heard it in the children's talk this morning. Ian and I don't compare notes. But it's possible because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God with us. God in us. And that changes everything. The law now sits at the seat of my emotions, my feelings, my thinking. So it shouldn't fail to affect everything. The law now sits at that place and the Holy Spirit works within me. So in my doubts, in my tough times, in everything, the Holy Spirit shows me and makes me call out, Abba, Father. You see, in the new covenant, we're not only able to learn the law like in the old, but the new covenant comes with power to be able to obey. The promise of the new covenant, he will write the law on our hearts. And thirdly, knowing God. Under the old covenant, it was possible to know God. But like we've seen, the realization of sin separated the people from a holy God. The author will talk a lot more about this in the next couple of chapters. But this picture of the tabernacle that he has introduced is a picture of separation. The tabernacle sectioned off and there we saw the most holy place where the presence of God was or was seen but was not open to most folk. Only the high priest could go in on your behalf and then only once a year. But look at the promise of the new covenant, verse 11. For they shall all know me. We can know God because of Jesus Christ in an intimate and real relationship. 
we can come before God because Jesus Christ has dealt with sin. We can come before God. We can come into his presence. The Holy Spirit reassures us of this, of that, showing us now that we can call out that we are children of God. And they shall all know me. Don't forget the all there. This means all of us together can know God. It does away with any hierarchy. It means we can all come to God. We do that ourselves. We don't need a priest or anyone else to mediate for us. That's not saying we don't benefit or can't benefit from Bible teaching. I don't want to put myself out of a job. Or it doesn't mean that we don't learn from each other and speak truth into each other's lives. But it does mean we can come to God anytime by ourselves because we have this very real relationship with him. What a promise. For they shall all know me. And I say, there's so much more we could talk covenantal, but just looking at these three promises. You go back to Jesus, the words of the verse 22 of the previous passage. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The new covenant. I don't know about you, but I get a bit suspicious of the word new these days. Perhaps it's because I'm getting older. <laughs> but I don't like new an upgrade of a gadget doesn't usually mean better in my books. A new phone usually means it's bigger than the last one. I don't want it bigger. It usually means it's more complicated with more buttons for me to press. And usually all these wonderful things they promise and make new, it's like, well, I don't need any of those things. Just give me my old phone back. So is the new covenant an upgrade on the old? Is it much better? Is it that much better? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says, yes, you bet it is. The old covenant was good. It showed us a merciful, loving God. It showed us what we are really like, sinful, fallen people. And it showed us that sin is such a serious thing before this wonderful, holy God. It was wonderful in the way it pointed forward. But that was its limit. But the new covenant in Jesus Christ, wow. The promises we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God himself, who came to deal with sin and the Holy Spirit living within. 
and these promises. Our deepest spiritual need met. Forgiveness of sin. Power to overcome my weaknesses and direct fellowship with the Lord of the universe. If you are a Christian today, praise God that you live in the new covenant. This is who you are and where you are fact. Whatever you are feeling, whatever you are going through, these promises are yours in Jesus Christ. He came, he died, so you could know forgiveness of sin, so that you could know peace with God, so that you could have the power, the Holy Spirit indwelling to live for him, so that you could be in relationship with him. Christian, this is you. This is what Jesus Christ has won for you under the new, new covenant. Rejoice today. And however you are feeling, we don't always feel like that. We don't always feel the wonder of that. But pray. God, remind me of what you have done for me and who I am and what I have because of your covenantal promises to me. And if you aren't a Christian here today, then you can be. These promises are not reserved for a few lofty people, no. The promises we talked about this morning, sins forgiven. God dwelling within you. A real, personal, intimate relationship with a Father God. Because of what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross, he says, come. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to him today and you will be a new covenant person too. What a covenant. What promises. What a saviour. What a guarantee. He tells of a better covenant because Jesus is better. In the quiet. Now, be honest with God. He knows your heart. Reflect on what we've said this morning. If you're a Christian, these promises are yours. Thank God for them. Say you want to live in this power that the new covenant brings. And if you're not a Christian, as you quiet, talk to God now, maybe even for the first time. Confess sin. Thank him for Jesus and claim these promises in him for yourself. Father, we're so thankful for the entirety of your word. We thank you for the law, for your covenant relationship with your people in the Old Testament. 
We thank you for what it shows us of you and ourselves. Thank you that it points forward to Jesus. And we're so thankful for him. We thank you for his sacrifice, his love, his life, and how he now reigns and intercedes for us as our great high priest. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you for its promises. We thank you as your people we live under it. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Challenge us to keep going in it and in you. Day by day we pray. Amen.